0: About two years ago, I got an email from a guy named Jack Stafford, a British songwriter and podcaster who lives in Italy. I think the first time he wrote to me was to be a guest on this podcast. In the email, he wrote that he grew up in the UK, but quickly moved to Amsterdam, where, as he said, he lived a toy boy lifestyle, working as a copywriter, musician, and fashion designer. However, he went on, this led to burnout. So Jack sold all his possessions and set off on a bicycle tour as a nomadic troubadour, He traveled through 45 countries, playing hundreds of house concerts in return for a place to sleep. His email went on to explain that he recorded many of his crazy adventures in his songs, and through those, plus countless self-help books and podcasts, as well as yoga, Ayurveda, and Vipassana meditation, he grew and grew to become a unique modern-day troubadour. The culmination of his life skills is the unique Pod Songs podcast, he said, where together with other musical artists from around the world, he interviews all types of people and writes a song to bring greater awareness to their work. In the previous year alone, he said, he had released over a hundred songs. I decided not to respond to Jack's email. Welcome to the third story. I'm Leo Sidrick. As you might imagine, a guy like Jack Stafford doesn't just send one email and then leave it alone. This is a guy who traveled through 45 countries asking people if he could sing his songs in exchange for a place to sleep. He doesn't give up after just one email. Over the course of the following nine months, he continued to reach out to me consistently, eventually inviting me to be a guest on his Pod Songs podcast. Over the course of those nine months of relentless emails from Jack, I came to understand that he and I have some things in common. We're both songwriters and podcasters. We've both paid our dues in the world of advertising and commercial media. And we're both searchers in one way or another. He suggested that I send a short list of people who I would like to interview and then use that interview as inspiration for a song. As you probably know, I'm already in the habit of interviewing people for the Third Story podcast. And in fact, I've written a lot of songs that were either direct responses to those interviews or loosely inspired by them. So choosing who to talk to for Jack's podcast was a little confusing, and I decided to just kind of freestyle some names. And the first name I came up with was physicist and writer Alan Lightman, whose books I read in college, and they had an influence on me. I figured, if Jack can line up Alan Lightman, I'll do it. A week later, Jack wrote back and asked me when I'd like to do the interview with Alan Lightman, who had already agreed to do it. And that is where we find ourselves today. What follows is a little unusual. It's my conversation with Alan Lightman for the Pod Songs podcast. So the first bit is actually a conversation between me and Jack Stafford, getting to know one another and figuring out how this is supposed to work before Alan joined the call. The conversation between me and Jack actually goes to some pretty unexpected places before the main event gets started. And the bulk of the episode, which is my talk with Lightman, is a complete journey. I'll just say It was unlike any other interview I've ever done, and I think you'll understand why as soon as it starts. It ended up turning into an extraordinary conversation about the intersection of science and the humanities, mortality, success, the cosmos, technology, consciousness, writing fiction, embracing ambiguity, out-of-body experiences, Ernest Becker's denial of death, and the idea that there are no answers to profound questions. We actually recorded this almost a year ago, back in November of 2022. And then I wrote a song inspired by the interview, and that song will be released later this month, on October 20th to be exact. It's called Meaning in the Moment. But I'm going to play a little snippet of the song at the end of today's episode to whet your appetite. I've edited this episode from my feed. You can watch the full unedited thing on YouTube or on the PodSongs website if you're interested. To do that, check out PodSongs.com, where you can listen to all of Jack's episodes, in which either he or some other musical guest interviews a beloved figure, and then they write a song about it. And at PodSongs, you can also watch the video of today's conversation because we did it as a video call. And of course, you can visit the Third Story website, third-story.com, to sign up, subscribe, and check the archive. Hundreds of past episodes with scientists and creative writers and other deep dives with brilliant creative people. And if you like this project, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give it some stars. The third story is made in partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about all their award-winning content. And as a matter of fact, the third story was just recognized for excellence in podcasting by the Signal Awards, where it came in silver in the Audience Choice Award for Best Music Podcast. Now, buckle up and strap in for this somewhat unusual ride. Me and Jack Stafford, followed by me and Alan Lightman, talking it down. Hello, welcome to PodSongs, where we interview
1: inspirational people as inspiration for a new song. Today, my guest is the musician Leo Sidran, and his guest is Alan Lightman. Hello, sir.
0: Hello, sir. How's it going? Good, how are you? I'm great. Okay, well, are you ready for this? I really don't know. You know, this one is so different for me because, and I think it's good. I mean, in all fronts, not just the musical aspect of this project, but Mm. the podcast aspect, because I'm so in control of my projects. Um, You do a great, you do a wonderful job. I'm aware that my MO is to kind of just make sure that my thumbprint is everywhere.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so, you know, after... 200, nearly 250 podcast episodes, I have a kind of a sense of, well, this is what I do and this is how I approach it. And, you know, I don't think I've written out questions or even bullet points for an interview in over five years. You know, I just go in and try to, uh, in with the person I'm going to talk Mm -hmm. to, but I read your little sheet that you send out about process. And I said, well, in the interest of following this thread, I wrote some questions. Out. I don't know if okay. I'm going to use them, but you know, I'm here for the experience. Am I catching you in Italy? Are you still in Italy right now? I
1: am still in Italy. Yeah. I've been here 10 years now and I've, I'm a, I've got a little baby, five month old now. So I'm in That's your awesome. phase of, yeah. of rediscovering life and my relationship to my father as well and um, completing the cycle. Yeah.
0: That's right. It's, it's That's
1: crazy. It's, yeah. And I'm a bit tired, but uh, do you see yeah. these bags under the eyes. Actually coming to do a podcast is like a real break, you know, because I, I give a real excuse not to, to be holding the baby he's going through a real fussy fussy period at the moment.
0: how do you deal with that you know i mean i was just walking the dog i realized i had promised my wife that i would walk the dog before we did this and so mm, it, mm. doing this but yeah but
1: you you walk the dog i have to carry him
0: i know i understand that yeah, you, you're very different my daughter's like, cool. a lot harder it is harder it's, it is harder <laughs> but you know i mean yours is harder although i remember when i started looking into buddhist philosophy a little bit and the, I, I learned that the fundamental principle of buddhism is that life is suffering and i i took major issue with that because yeah, I, felt I disagree like, well, with that a lot yeah yeah I don't, I don't suffer life is not suffering you know but then i realized that i li- i realized and also through a bunch of these interviews that i've done like i interviewed uh, the actor uh, peter coyote a couple of times he's also a zen buddhist priest and, and he said to me mm. it's not suffering it's been mistranslated what it is is affliction life is uh, affliction that's how right. it tr- translates I thought, well, okay, yeah, life is affliction. I had to walk the dog and I was stressing out before. And that's affliction. I mean, it seems Mm -hmm. like a a ridiculously minute affliction, but it is a kind of affliction. You holding your baby Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. incessantly is affliction, even though it's like a form of, it's like the most joyous thing you could possibly do. It's also like, oh my God, when can I put this baby down so I can like...
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we spent years trying to make the thing. Now he's here, we're arguing about who's going to hold him, so... I think he's a, he's a, definitely a Zen teacher. That's what I've yeah. heard it called. A baby is that you have to be in the moment and you have to keep your shit together because he, he will run for the show. Well, that's and what t-
0: proving to to I was going to ask you. So, you know, here you are. You, you know that there's chaos on the other side of the door, and you mm. have, you know, this <laughs> conversation right now that we're having oh, is it's a, fruit, it's great. But it's oh, yeah. so much work that you've put in to make this happen, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever feel like, oh, I really need to show up? Like, I really have to extra show up right now, considering how much I've worked to put this together.
1: No, because now you
0: do the interview. Oh, right. That's, that explains why that's how I'm feeling.
1: Yeah, because if we could talk about your guest for a minute, Alan Lightman is a, a heavyweight. I wouldn't want to do this interview. You've got to sh- really show up. Why did you pick him first? That's probably a good question. If I... Oh, you know,
0: as heavy as I knew his, he was, as much of a heavyweight as I knew he was, mm. I actually did not know the half of it when i ah, put so been I, researching. I mean i read a couple of his books when i was in college i read a okay. book called einstein's dreams that was the first thing i read right him. that's the most famous one yeah that's the most famous one and that is a book that alan lightman is a physicist and he's also a writer he he lives yeah. in between the space of science and the arts
1: mm. at harvard then, didn't he hold dual uh, he did at mit
0: yeah at mit mit wow that's an unusual that's pretty unusual, yeah, to yeah. be ahead of-, of these two disciplines. This book, Einstein's Dreams, first of all. I mean, I didn't remember it specifically. I remembered the feeling of it. You know, I mean, it's almost 30 years. It's crazy to even be alive long enough that I could say I read a book 30 years ago and I still remember what it felt like to read it. Mm. But really, I put Alan Lightman's name on the list. Like I would like to talk to Alan Lightman because I remembered that feeling. And part of what I remembered about it was an understanding that we as creative people take our sources from all over. And in fact, the more I've been thinking about preparing for this interview for Pod Songs, for your project, I realized that it's kind of the ultimate conversation to have because we're talking about somebody who studied deeply the world of physics and let it inform his poetic heart. You know what I mean? Mm. So like Einstein's Dreams is a book that imagines what were the dreams that Albert Einstein was having in the spring of 1905 when he was formulating the theory of relativity. So it's not really a science text. It's, it's kind of like a dream state of what might have been going on in the background of a great scientific mind that would help him to formulate his theory of relativity. Okay, That conceit is so brilliant mm. that mm. I wanted to talk to Alan, I just wanted to talk to the person that wrote that. Wow. And I did remember that I read another one of his books after that called Dance for Two, a collection of essays that he wrote that primarily explored how science shows up in our lives in all kinds of places. Like there's one essay that I did remember reading all those years ago, and I went and reread it before this interview about a ballet dancer and all of the forces that are taking place on the stage in her body, in the air, how physics is contributing to movement to dance, like what's happening, how, right. how does the body move through space? But then beyond that, I mean, Alan Lightman is highly accomplished. He's written a number of novels. He's written a, a memoir. He's written essays. He's written scientific books. He did scientific work. He's really kind of a Renaissance person. I think I, I did see that he's just about to launch this new, uh, mini series on PBS I saw that, program. Yeah. It seems like he really is interested in trying to answer these big spiritual questions through the lens of science so,
1: so he's interviewing the dalai lama i saw in the trailer
0: i saw that too
1: so i'm four degrees i'm i'm interviewing you you interview alan alan interviews the dalai lama so i'm i'm four degrees. is it three degrees from from the dalai lama
0: you know i'm not enlightened at all i mean that's a ridiculous thing to say but i have interviewed some other people who spoke to the dalai lama also oh yeah it is kind of incredible to think that we're, we're always a few degrees away from Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> that being said, you know, when I married my wife, I promised her that I would introduce her to Madonna one day. She loves Madonna. And, and we actually met, got together playing in a Madonna cover band years ago. And I was absolutely confident that I could get her in a room with Madonna at some point. And I, I used it as a kind of a, I don't know, I tried to attract her with it. I said, Hey, you stick with me. I'm, I'll get you, get you to meet Madonna one day. And I, I can't do it. I can't get it done.
1: But you, you, you won an Oscar. Yeah, you I mean you? We could. I could interview you basically for. I mean, I was checking out all your. You so you doing so many big name advertising commercials. As well, you do Coca Cola, American Express, and FIFA. You've done so much work, and you do this podcast as well. You're as productive as
0: Doctor Lightman. Right I mean, it's just survival. You know, I, I realize that to make a living in the arts, in yeah,
1: because you grew up in it, the family, you must have seen that. You know, jobbing musicians, it's tough. No?
0: And it's a job. I still deal with that balance between art and commerce all the time it's a big part of what i'm talking to people about mm, in, the, mm. in the podcast sometimes i i think i interview people in my podcast because i want them to tell me it's okay <laughs> you know i want to hear them right right tell me what they've how they deal with it but it's a job you know and mm. and, and, and it's also an enormous privilege i mean sometimes i think i support myself by manipulating mm. sound you know other people have Proper jobs. My job is just invent things and make people hopefully feel something through through what I make. It's pretty incredible. But so what that means is that over the course of a lifetime, yeah, I mean it's a lot of projects and clients and
1: yeah. I got a job out of university as a copywriter. I was working as a songwriter. So, you know, I was writing songs and they said, "Oh, well, you write songs, you can do copy." I mean, it's so I got a job, I moved to the Netherlands and I got a job there and um, I was twenty one or something really young and to move to the netherlands was fantastic but then to work in copywriting is you know i learned a lot of you do get a lot from it it's a a discipline about how to communicate have a concept and i think it's helped me with pod songs because you know i i have to how to frame things to communicate and that's informed maybe my my lyric writing these sort of lyrically informed has to be about a subject and maybe i got that from you know instead of just writing love songs forever as many of my peers seem to do
0: i really made an effort at a certain point in my songwriting to stop writing love songs or at least in the traditional sense in in the framework that i had been writing them before they still managed to s- slip out yeah wow. <laughs> i mean how, how how can you avoid it but i think the world is filled with love songs great mm-hmm. love songs yeah That's yeah it. i'm not locking it but yeah but once you've done 400 what else can we talk about yeah yeah and it yeah. turns out it's actually quite difficult to figure out what to talk about if you're not going to talk about love right that's why i have pot songs well i I thought about that as i was approaching this also like i tend to go like i was saying in my own interviews i go with with no agenda because I don't want to inhibit what might happen you know right and so as i prepared for this interview i went in with sort of no agenda just like i want to speak with dr lightman and and Mm -hmm. um and allow what his answers allow his answers to guide the conversation but yeah yeah but then I, I wrote to you the other day and I said, well, I forgot what we're doing, actually. I forgot that this is this is framed around both mm. uh, a larger question of, well, first of all, is this in the service of a larger cause? And also, you know, what do I need to ask about in order to write a song?
1: Mm. It's good just to let it flow. And, you know, in terms of a cause, it could just be about, you know, the human cause, you know, about what it is to be human or yeah. is there a God or something big will come out of it. You know, it could be the biggest question. So. It doesn't it doesn't have to be about uh we don't never go into the interview with this song is about this, but just just it has to be a summary of the conversation. So whatever we talk
0: about. Through my work as a commercial composer, Mm. I have had to write many songs to order, order, exactly. And you realize that it is a craft. On the other hand, when it comes to my own songs, I often try to let the process remain a little mysterious and and that the muse will visit you as we still I think we wanna believe
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. I believe we're in a sea of mind. Uh, I'm actually a member of a spiritual organization called the Etheria Society, which is billed as the religion of the future. And so we believe that you evolve into greater and greater life forms on other planets and other classrooms at different frequencies of vibration. And eventually, life forms merge to form planets and suns, solar systems, and you evolve into greater and greater
0: entities. When did you discover this organization?
1: it was about three years ago i was in india and um had a kind of an awakening yeah i just started waking up every day at three thirty-three 33 and having all these um synchronicities and then i was directed to this organization via kundalini i was learning about yoga so yeah it was pretty crazy at the time but now it's kind of it's really a science is scientific religion it's um it takes a long time to talk about it but um check it out ethereus.org is the website
0: right I like your planet poster behind you.
1: Yeah, yeah. this is all from the Ethereum Society. This is the, the Mother Earth, a living being, Dr. King, the Logos of Earth. It's big stuff, yeah. You know?
0: And were you m- married when you went through this uh, transition? Yeah, yeah, I was with my partner. We we're still not
1: married. We were still uh, were you,
0: sorry, were you with your partner? Yes, yes we were. Yeah. yeah quite yeah. a traditional way of framing that question. Were you with the same partner? That yes, today? yes. She's still with me, yeah. She stuck through it what uh, that's what i was going to ask you what i mean how, what is that conversation
1: yeah i mean she went through it she thought it was pretty weird but you know but i think a lot of these people who go through who also joined the societies you go through because i was in Ayurveda first and then buddhism yeah and then you know vipassana so i come through so once you do those things people label, label you as a searcher and then so when you finally find the gold people say well ha, he's just a searcher so you kind of labeled with that so they think this is also a phase
0: but how do you know that it's not? I mean, did you think that all of the other phases along the way, on the way to this, were phases when you were in them? Or, d- or did you see them as the thing?
1: No, I didn't really see them as the thing. That's why I kept searching. Yeah, You're such a professional here. You now you're interviewing me. You're supposed to be preparing for Dr. Lightman. And you're just pulling these stories out of me with your, just your natural charm and your tried and tested interview technique.
0: I have discovered through experience that I much prefer to be the one a- asking the questions.
1: <laughs> where well, you can slip into your, your other yeah. mode as our guest
0: dr lightman oh hello hi
1: thanks for joining us so, so this is you're this in, is
0: a, in London
2: or, I'm in I, I'm in Italy Leo's in New oh. York right yeah mm-hmm. and where are we finding you I'm in the Boston area Great. It's really a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Jack, should, we,
0: should I dive in? Is there anything you want me to say?
1: No, please. So um, I'll just get a little preamble. So we're going to write a song inspired by the conversation today. So if there's a particular thing you you feel insp- you'd like to be in the song or you'd like to talk about, it, then just talk about it today and we'll, uh, we'll go in that direction.
2: Okay, well, this is, this is an unusual conversation for me. I've done many podcasts, but not one where A song is being written. Yeah. If you could speak in rhyme, that would really help our work as well. Right. Well, if I could sing well, that would probably help even more. Definitely. Couldn't hurt. I'm Leo, by the way. It's a pleasure to meet you.
0: It's interesting to hear you say that you've done many interviews, but none in which a song is being written, because I think one of the things that I was so inspired by in your work is The understanding that we can take the material for creative work from all kinds of sources, particularly, I think about when I, as a young undergraduate, read Einstein's dreams, it was a revelation to me because it was so emotive. And yet I understood that it was influenced by what may have been in your mind, informing Einstein as he developed his theory of relativity.
2: Well, I, I didn't expect that plan for that book to be a science book, I used Einstein as, as a literary device, but I certainly did not write it as a, a lecture on relativity or physics 101 course or anything like that. I
0: wonder if your science background, your authenticity, your, you validated it because you come from the world of science that people s- decided to s- see it through that lens.
2: Well, that could be. I think that my background as a scientist helped me conjure up the various ways that time might behave, but I don't know whether it had any impact on authenticating the book. I just don't know the answer to that. I'm so curious about
0: this life that you've lived between science and the arts. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I understand about your biography going all the way back to your childhood in Memphis is that your father owned a movie theater and your mother was a dancer. That's right. Just curious what your relationship was with the movies, the arts in general as a kid. Neither
2: one of my parents was an artist per se. My father was a pretty good cartoonist, but that was totally as a hobby. He drew cartoons on the wall of my pediatrician. But in terms of the movies, because my father owned some movie theaters, I saw a lot of movies. And I think I became very conscious of scene setting and Later on, I think that I incorporated that sensibility of scene setting into my writing. My mother, as as you say, taught dancing. She was a good dancer. I'm a terrible dancer, so I I don't know whether I got anything positive from there, but I I did enjoy watching her dance. So those were influences on me. When I was in high school, I uh, was on the editor of the literary magazine. And I wrote poetry, but I also entered projects in the in the local science fairs. So I had that kind of split personality from a young age. I think over time it has proven to
0: be your great strength. But there are so many forces in all of these disciplines that would encourage you to choose one or the other. Did you
2: feel that stress, and and how did you deal with it? I definitely felt that pressure from family and friends and teachers, I think it's just easier in life to be more of the scientific type, quantitative, deliberate, versus the artistic type where you, you embrace ambiguity. I had two groups of friends when I was growing up. I had the scientific types and I had the, the artistic types. And I easily went back between the two groups without thinking there was anything unusual about that, but looking back on it. I see that I had two distinct groups of friends. I think that most children have an affinity and an interest in both the sciences and the arts. And I think that it's, it's kind of drummed out of them. Hmm. They pick up either consciously, unconsciously, a, a, a message that it's easier to make a life if you're one of one or the other.
0: Do you still see that you have different groups of friends or different affinities like that? Or do you see it as? your life is more connected now
2: well my life is certainly more connected but i still have two different groups of friends you talk about embracing the unknown you know that there's something much
0: less clear about a life in the arts you described i think it was in probable impossibilities this moment maybe you've described it in other places this moment when you were a young boy and you experienced what we would call an out-of-body experience this like a very powerful unknowable event. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, I think it's it's possible that many people have had experiences like that. Like the one I had and, and maybe not have noted it as significant, but I was probably about nine or 10 years old and it was actually during the daytime, there was a train that went by our house in Memphis close enough so that you could hear the train going by. And, you know, sometimes sounds will trigger thoughts and memories and ideas. Same way smells do that Proust wrote about, I think sounds do the same thing. They're, they're sort of primal and, uh, somehow the sound of the train going by triggered something in me that launched this out of body experience where I saw myself not only out of my body, but sort of from a, from a vantage that was an outer space. Hmm. And I felt that I could sort of see my life as a speck in the cosmos, a, a tiny, both in time and in space and sort of got this, this visceral sense of the vast expanse of time before I was born and in the vast expanse of time after I would be dead and I felt very small and I also felt like. It really didn't matter to the cosmos what happened to me. And then I thought of all of these people, you know, starting with my parents who, for, of course, for a child, those are the most important people in your life and my brothers and then my teachers and all the people that I knew. And I was thinking all of these people get up in the morning and they brush their teeth and they go to dentist appointments, they go to school and none of it matters. It's, It's just an insignificant speck in the cosmos nobody's going to remember them after they're gone in fact the whole planet is just a speck you know from from a cosmic point of view w- why do we even bother to get up in the morning it was that line of thinking and i was only about 10 years old i was sort of philosophically inclined from a young age clearly
0: and do you feel that everything that followed that
2: experience in
0: some ways was a response to it? Or were you already tuned in? I mean, it it seems like so much of your work has been dealing with those questions.
2: I think a lot of my work has been dealing with our mortality, which, of course, is the fundamental issue in front of all of us. And uh, there's uh, an anthropologist, an American anthropologist named Ernest Becker, who wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book in the 1970s, called the denial of death. And he makes an argument in that book that that everything that we do, that we human beings do, Homo sapiens do, all of our institutions, our politics, our science, our art, the national boundaries we draw all of it, everything is a attempt to put off death. Somehow or another, it's an attempt to circumvent the the inevitable end of all of us. So I've I've been fascinated by that idea i've also been fascinated by the fact that we are just a collection of atoms and molecules that happens to come together in a special arrangement for a few years and then dissolves we're just material and somehow this this indescribable unique fabulous experience of consciousness and everything that consciousness brings about is is just a sensation brought about by the electrical and chemical exchanges between neurons in our brain. I mean, that just to me is is an overwhelming idea. And then the fact that in a few short years, the special arrangement of our atoms and molecules that makes us, that makes consciousness will dissolve. Our atoms will be scattered about in the soil and the oceans and the ground and, and, and the air. And they will have been our atoms, but our consciousness will not be there. Mm. That's just a staggering thought to me. Has your thinking on it evolved over time? I think it's sharpened. I've learned more about brain science and I've talked to some leading neuroscientists and, uh, I think I understand it better at a scientific level. Um, I don't think I understand it any more at a philosophical or aesthetic or theological level. So I'm, I'm just totally boggled by these ideas. Some of these ideas are, are themes in a upcoming public television series that's coming up in early January and that I'm, I'm involved with. Yeah. This
0: is show called searching, right? Our quest for meaning in the age of science. Yes. Based on what I've seen, it looks like it took you all over the world to
2: talk to all kinds of people about how they see this question. Yes, th- that's right. These are profound questions. And of course, there not, there are no answers to profound questions. We just mull over them and ponder them and are provoked by them. And, you know, some of that provocation brings out science. Some of it brings out art, some of it brings out music, I'm sure. These, these are eternal questions. I think in, in the 21st century that we can put these questions into a modern scientific context, but we still don't have answers. Reading your work, thinking about the nature of the universe, our lives
0: don't mean anything. You can't even see them, you can't measure it. And yet here we are. But also, you know, thinking about like the history of humanity and then in the last couple of hundred years scientific development started to accelerate you were very fixated on the year 1905 for a long time you loved that period at the beginning of the 20th century it was something that was like bubbling with promise and all of this was delivered in the 20th century but now in your own lifetime it seems like our understanding of the universe is speeding up at an accelerated pace, at an exponential pace. I saw you say maybe even in the preview for the miniseries, every moment matters. But my question is, but does this one matter more? I mean, is it possible to identify this moment in human history as more important? Well, when you say this moment, you mean plus or minus 50 years or 100 years? Well, I don't know if, you, if you're talking about the, in, in the sense of every, all we have is this moment in the sort of you know, philosophical sense of it. Or if you're referring to, yes, this historical moment, we could define it a matter of decades or centuries or days.
2: Well, well, so that's two different perspectives. And so let's talk about each of them. I used to think that, that only things that were permanent had meaning. Mm. We're talking about meaning. And for some reason, I thought that, that, that something had to be permanent or very long lasting to have meaning. The, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's paintings on, on the Sistine Chapel, sealing the Sistine Chapel, that will last a long time. Shakespeare's plays will last a long time. But even Leonardo da Vinci's paintings will eventually be gone. I mean, there may be some digitized version of them 500 years from now, but so I think that there's nothing that human beings do that's really permanent. Uh everything that we see in nature is impermanent. Even the stars eventually will burn out. So in the absence of anything at all that's permanent and long lasting, where do you look for meaning? I think that the only place you can find meaning is in the moment. Mm-hmm. When you're doing something very special. I think many of us we're, we're on automatic pilot half the time. You know, we're just going about our business, checking off our to-do list, not really being mindful to use a Buddhist term of really just being in the moment and giving yourself fully to the moment, getting to the other perspective of whether this historical period is special in, in all of the, you know, centuries of recorded history and all the accomplishments of human beings. I think that the internet and the computer and the, the information explosion that we have will be considered to be a very special moment in the, the history of, of humankind. So I, I do think that, that we are in a special moment for that reason.
0: Framing it in terms of the information explosion could be seen as very
2: optimistic. As Well, very, I'm, I'm optimistic and pessimistic. Mm-hmm. I'm optimistic because the internet and the computer have allowed us to do vastly more things than we were able to do in the past. So by any measure of what constitutes accomplishment, I think that we will accomplish exponentially more with this capability. What I'm pessimistic about is that it has speeded up the pace of life to an unhealthy degree. The, the, the pace of life, the speed of the pace of life has always been regulated by the speed of communication. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the 1830s, it was the telegraph, you know, which could, that was the new communication device, which could send a few bits per second. In 1985, the internet came, it could send a thousand bits per second. And now we can send a billion bits per second of information and if you just just look around you you can see that people are living faster than they were before because of our high speed communication devices people look at their smartphones every 5 minutes we divide up our day into 15 minute units of efficiency a study was done by the british council a few years ago of the walking speed of people in major cities and it was found that that over the last 30 years or so or so, the walking speed in 20 major cities has increased. We're just living faster. The downside of that is that we don't have living as fast as we do. We don't take the time to reflect on who we are and what our values are and where we're going. We're just rushing from one thing to the next. Of course, there there are exceptions to the rule, but in general, this fabulous development of the computer and the internet has increased the pace of life at the cost of self-reflection, meditation, and, and consideration of who we are and where we're going. So that's why I say I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. You remain very prolific,
0: and you seem to be only leaning further into the exploration of these big and quite patient questions. How do you navigate
2: through this accelerated pace of life? Well, um, my wife and I are extremely fortunate in that we have a, a summer house on a small island in the state of Maine, and we spend our entire summers there. My wife is a painter, and I'm mainly a writer now. There are no boats or ferry service or bridges to the island, and we really unplug there. And I try to take some time every day, even when I'm not on this island to unplug, to, to take a walk without my smartphone, which I, I strongly recommend to everybody just to take 20 minutes a day, unplug and, and just let your mind go where it wants to go. So that's the way that I have, uh, up until recently, I didn't use email. Really? Yeah. But I teach at MIT and it. Began to be a problem for my students that I was not on email. So I eventually threw in the towel and joined email. I guess we shouldn't expect to find you on Instagram or uh, Twitter. No. <laughs> there anytime soon. I mean, I, w- I wasn't on Twitter even before Elon Musk bought it. And yeah. I certainly wouldn't get on it now. It seems like you sat
0: that one out long enough that you it, it'll run its course. Yeah, I think so. And can we talk about music? I mean, I know that music also has been in your life, and that at yeah. times have have really sort of held music up as as a special
2: case in the arts. What
0: is your relationship with music like?
2: Well, I took ten years of piano lessons when I was uh, a child, and I studied with a woman who was the grand student of Franz Liszt. So I can trace my my musical heritage, three generations back to Franz Liszt, um, who was a great pianist as well as a composer, the piano has stayed with me. I mean, 10 years is is long enough for it to get into your blood. So I've had a piano wherever I've lived and I play something almost every day. I also uh, played the flute when I was in graduate school, when I was, I was a graduate student getting a PhD in theoretical physics, and I took time out to learn the flute. So music has been a part of my life. I wrote a, a novel called Mr. G, which is the story of creation is told by God. Uh, his, he's all powerful, but he, he makes mistakes at times. He has an uncle and an aunt who are constantly giving me advice about how to go about creation. Uh, people have told me that there's a lot of music and at least in the first few chapters of that book, I wasn't aware of it at the time when I was writing it, but but apparently at least some readers feel that it's there. Do you listen to music when you're working? I often do. Not always. I like to work on a quiet place. I know that, that writers have all different kinds of modus operandi. And some writers like to work in, in a noisy cafe. I don't know what it, uh, composers of music. I don't know whether there's the same range of environments that they like, but I often lis- listen to music. I-, I like quiet music. Do you select music according to how you want to feel the energy of what you're I, feeling? I sometimes do. There's a magnificent piece, and I can't remember the, the composer now, but you'll know it. It's some like ode to a princess dying young. Do you mm-hmm. know that one? I don't, but I but I but you could fill many books with what I don't know. Well, same here. There are certain pieces of music that um, that put me in the right frame of mind for a particular part of a book that I'm writing. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing what emotional impact music has. Yeah. course you guys yeah, know more about that than I do, but
0: I don't know. I mean, you know, you, you talk about the thing that triggered your out-of-body experience as being a sound, right? I mean, all the way it back. It was a sound. It was a sound. Yeah. Which is music ultimately. I mean, yeah. it, same kind of trigger.
2: I mean, I, I think that being sensitive <laughs> to sounds had, had survival benefit. You know, back 2 million years ago when Homo sapiens was evolving, that you had to be sensitive to sounds for survival. You know, if there's a, a rustling in the bushes, you had to know whether it was friend or foe. And I think that, that our uh, appreciation to, to music as an art form is probably a byproduct of that sensitivity to sound, which had survival benefit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I often ask the question, why did we, in the midst of all of the struggle of surviving, why did we start making up melodies? I mean, why, why would we create music of all the things that we could have been doing? We started singing and they found flutes in the caves. You know, they found these yeah. bird bone flutes. I mean, we, it goes all the way back. It, it's, a, it's a really interesting
2: impulse that came out of us. It is. You know, it might be have been part of the same impulse that stirred Neanderthal man to to do the paintings on the wall, you know, an an expression of your being in this strange cosmos of a universe that we're in this strange place. And, And how do we express ourselves? And I think that painting and music are long before science.
0: Well, but again, I think that's why it's kind of striking that you, with all of the awareness of the universe and the realization of our space in it, At an early age decided that you would devote part of your time to poetry which is another impulse that's you know related to what you're saying it's an assertion of self it's it's an expression of of being knowing what you knew about
2: where we or, or feeling what you felt about our place in the universe why write poetry well we were talking about music poetry is musical you know poetry is meant to be read aloud and and it has rhythms and cadences and sounds and so you know, you see, I've got, I've got four grandchildren and they make up poems and sing things and rhyme just spontaneously. I think poetry, when I was young, writing poetry ex- expressed both my philosophical bent and my love of, of sound. Has your thinking about the role
0: of the arts of creativity changed as the world has become more complicated. I mean, is it more interesting for you to express yourself artistically or
2: creatively today? Yeah, I think so. I hope that I'm more mature, more mature than I was at 25 years old. Uh, and I'm able to see the world on a, on a larger canvas because of that. I've had more life experience as, as, as we all do, as we get older and I see the arts and the sciences as different ways of expressing ourselves. As we get older, we, we hopefully we think more about who we are.
0: Well, you know, when you spoke about mortality, about how at the end of the day, maybe the fundamental issue that you've been grappling with is mortality. You seem like you're very healthy. You seem like you're strong. But as we get older, we approach our mortality more viscerally. Yeah, not only are we living in a complicated world, a world of moving at a faster pace, as you say, but the question mortality becomes more in focus. It it becomes more real.
2: Uh, Getting back to the previous question you asked me, as I've gotten older and I've understood more about myself, I think I realize that, that I am an artist at a very deep level. And I don't say that to compliment myself, but I like the solitude of creating something in the arts. I mean, I know there's some arts where you're always working with other people. If you're playing in a symphony orchestra, if you're in a dance troupe, but I think many of the arts that you, you are working as a solitary creator. And that's something that I feel is a, is a very deep part of me. I know if I go two or three days, even as little as two or three days without doing something creative. I feel empty, uh, my skin starts to crawl. I really think that, that, that artistic exploration and expression are, are deep parts of me. I, I also know that I'm fundamentally a scientist. (laughs) If I see a boat on the water, a motorboat, and there's a wake behind it, that's at a certain angle, I, I immediately want to calculate why that angle is what it is. And so I have a a deep part of me also that wants to understand quantitatively and rationally why the physical world is as it is.
0: Mm. And even maybe what makes it beautiful. When I read that your mother taught dance, I was reminded of that early essay in Dance for Two, where you describe what's happening with a ballet dancer, what forces are at work. And it was sort of like, in a way, helping to explain not only what's making this happen, but why we maybe think it's beautiful. Everything has to take place in order for us to perceive it as beautiful.
2: Yes. Understanding why things are beautiful in a scientific manner for me does not diminish my awe in the slightest bit. I'm still as awestruck by the way that a a setting sun melts and the way that mist rises from the ground early in the morning rainbows. The blue of the sky. I can explain all of those things in scientific terms, but, but it doesn't diminish the transcendent experience of witnessing them.
0: You know, songwriters often talk about how when they are really in a flow state, the act of creation is almost a sense that something is passing through you or moving through you, that you're just channeling something that was always there. Yeah. I wonder if you've had any experience as you, Pursue your own creative work.
2: Well, I, I love that description that you have, and I, I think that, uh, that I've had that feeling also. At the same time, as a scientist, I think that ultimately it all is rooted in the neurons in yeah. our brains and in the electrical and chemical messages between them. But I have certainly had that feeling like something is being channeled through me. Were either one of you sailors? Well, I'm going to describe an an experience that happens when you're sailing a boat that is exactly the way that I feel when I get into this zone that you're describing. What slows boats down, a sailboat down, is the water, of course, the friction in the water. If you have a boat with a round bottom, and some boats have round bottoms, and if you have a strong wind, every once in a while, the boat will get up on top of the water and plane over the water. It's called planing. It's skimming over the water. And the friction goes to zero. And so what it feels like if you're in the boat is it feels like this hand has grabbed hold of the, the mast of the boat and just yanked you forward. That's what it feels like. And when I'm doing something that's really creative writing or even playing music on the piano and, and I get into this, this, this zone, it feels like I'm planing, Hmm. it feels the same. Removal of obstruction. Removal of obstruction, removal of of friction. When it
0: comes to music, sometimes I've asked this question if we really are just unlocking or accessing things that exist, patterns that the brain perceives Mm -hmm. as beautiful. The overtone series is one of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We we think that these these connections, these patterns of notes and of chords and of, of sounds are beautiful, and it's not a mistake. I mean, it actually is something that's occurring naturally, and we're just kind of trying to borrow it in our own way. Write it down. Yeah. And as a writer too, I mean, you have form, you have shape, you have rhythm, you have a lot of naturally occurring phenomena that you're kind of borrowing just to put a a sentence together or a great paragraph
2: together. Right. But in addition to all of that, you have characters and the novels that I've written. It's frequently the case that in the first draft of the novel, I don't understand the characters very well. Mm. And some of the things they say don't ring true to me. And then there are moments where I suddenly get an insight into a character and I understand who she is. And it may be just with a single sentence that comes out. And suddenly I understand this character. Of course, a novelist shouldn't understand his characters totally, because uh, once you understand a character totally, there are no longer any subterranean depths of complexity, real people have, are very complicated, uh. Full of self-contradictions. And so I, I want to understand the character, but I don't want to understand the character fully, because once I understand the character fully, the reader won't, will no longer feel that submerged depth of complexity. You know, when you, when you think about it, we don't really know anybody perfectly. We don't even know our, our boyfriend or girlfriend perfectly.
0: I thought you were going to say we don't even know ourselves perfectly.
2: Well... I don't think we know ourselves perfectly either. And we do things that don't always make sense even to us. We do. We do. And that's the wonderful thing about human beings. That's why all of this is fun. If if, if all of this were totally predictable, I think it would be much less fun. In the television series that's premiering in January, I talked to a neuroscientist, a leading neuroscientist, and I, I asked him the following question. Do you think that we will ever understand the brain well enough so that we could upload the brains of two people into a computer and have it predict whether they will fall in love. Mm. And he said, well, right now we can say that there's a 40% chance you'll fall in love with Alice and a 70% chance you'll fall in love with Mary. As time goes on, those percentages will get higher and higher and approach hundred percent. And I told him, you know, Bob, I really don't want a computer predicting who I'm going to fall in love with. I have often wondered, like,
0: what would a computer make of arranged marriages? You know, there are plenty of examples of people who fall in love over time. I mean, we're capable of falling in love with many people for multiple reasons. I don't know if a computer can really predict those kinds of things. Well, I hope not. That is so interesting to hear you say that as a novelist, you shouldn't fully know your characters. I mean, I guess I've heard people talk about how they, they get to know their characters. You're discovering your characters. They reveal themselves to you, which always seems so Yeah. How could something that isn't
2: right. How could somebody reveal it if it's all coming out of your brain? Creation of your own. Well, listen, this is back to this channeling yeah. verb that you use, that even though it's coming out of your brain, it's coming out of a subconscious part of your brain. And the the subconscious brain is vastly underrated. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a huge amount of thinking and and decisions and sensibility that, that our conscious brain is not aware of. So I think that this feeling of channeling is, is an example of that. Yeah.
0: You described early on your comfort with place setting as being related to the movies, you know? Right. And I think, Part of your great success as a writer about science is that you're able to explain it in a way and set the place of the conversation in a way that's accessible. Do you see them as very different when you're writing about something that is naturally occurring, that you can't invent, you can only describe, that the poetry comes in the way it's described, as opposed to when you're f- creating something fully out of whole cloth?
2: There, there are similarities You know, I think good science writing or good writing about any subject involves storytelling because, you know, that, that's gets back to our primitive selves. But I also think there's some differences in science writing or creative writing. Let me generalize science writing to expository writing, you know, where you're nonfiction, you're, you're making an argument and you, you amass facts to lead your reader from the beginning. To the end of the argument we all learn or we we should learn my daughter's never learned this that in good expository writing you should start each paragraph with a topic sentence which sort of tells the reader what the idea of the paragraph is it's, it's a common usage in expository writing you're supposed to start each sentence in expository writing with with a, a sentence that sort of summarizes the paragraph and tells your reader where they're going in fiction writing a topic sentence is fatal Mm. because you want your reader to be blindsided. You want them to be carried off to that magical place you're trying to create. You want them to become part of the scene. And if you tell the reader at the beginning, what the trip is about, it will cancel the trip. You want your reader to participate with you in the creative activity. And every reader will bring, you know, a different set of life experiences. It's probably the same when you listen to music. You know, everybody who listens to music is already bringing to the table all the music they've ever heard in their life, all the musical experiences they have. They're not listening with a blank slate. Yeah, although what's interesting is, I mean, I live
0: primarily in the world of song and the popular song, I guess. Mm -hmm. I have an 11-year-old daughter. Watching her wake up to music has been interesting. And I think kids can tell you... I mean, if if I were running a record label and I had a new band and I wanted to know is this song a hit, I would put a dozen eleven-year-old girls in the room and they'll tell you right away is this a hit or not. <laughs> they attach themselves to what's working about it, what's catchy about that, it. Is right. it too slow? Yeah. They understand it intuitively, and then we spend the rest of our lives kind of complicating it with the questions of aesthetics and style. But they know right away is this a hit?
2: That's interesting. That's very interesting. I don't know whether it's the same in, in music or in fiction, but I know that in fiction that you want to leave room for your reader's own imagination. And so you don't start each paragraph with a topic sentence.
0: And maybe you don't even
2: know what your topic sentence is. It sounds like there's a lot of discovery as you write. Yeah, right. Exactly. There's discovery, which is, you know, partly related to not understanding your characters fully. Do you write long outlines of your books? I have very simple, sketchy outlines, but I always leave room for my characters to surprise me. I I try not to overplot a book if it's, if it's a novel. Um, I want to be surprised. I can put my character in a situation where they're going to have to confront something, but then I stand back and get out of the way and just listen to them talk or watch them do what they're going to do. And uh, I like to be surprised. You know, it sounds like playing God,
0: looking down on these characters.
2: Well, isn't it the same when you write a tune? I mean, you're, you're creating something that wasn't there before.
0: Yes. In that case, yes. But and, and it's true when you write a tune, you can create anybody you want and have them do anything. They can fall in and love and out of love with each other. They can hurt each other. They can answer questions. They can do all
2: kinds of things. Well, but, you can also put two notes together. You know, that haven't been put together before that or a chord. It's increasingly harder, harder and harder to come by. <laughs> you know, the
0: same two notes may have been put together a thousand times, but the way I put them together, the, the way, way you put them in, the yes. it
2: feels when I put them together, that, yes. that's, that's what right. I have. That's new. You know, there are only a hundred plots and all of fiction right. throughout the history, but, but different writers are able to, to make those plots come alive in a different way, in a different setting, different era, different characters. We started out talking about
0: Einstein's dreams because that was the gateway into my understanding of you. And I realized as we were getting ready to talk today that it was published 30 years ago. It came Mm -hmm. out in 1993. So round numbers sometimes are, are nice ways of marking time. I don't know. You have written so much. You've done so much work. That book is
2: probably your most successful book. It's my most successful book. Yes. What do you think your career would have looked like without that book? Great question. I don't know. It certainly would have slowed me down a lot if not stopped me altogether. If I hadn't published that book. I mean, I think I still would have been a writer and tried to, you know, explore the the connection between the science and the arts. I don't know whether I would have been as successful if, if I hadn't had that book under my belt. So, I consider that to be a stroke of good luck, you know, wherever ideas come from. And, uh, I'm just grateful for the, the muses of, for handing me that book. As you were formulating it, do
0: you remember the process
2: of, of putting it together? I do. The title came to me first, which is an odd way to begin a project. I was already. Interested in the tension between the sciences and the and the humanities, and Einstein sort of represents our rational side, and our dreams represent our more intuitive side. So the title came to me first, and then I thought that was a very interesting juxtaposition of two words. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then I immediately scribbled down about ten ideas for dreams that Einstein might have had. Are you familiar with the writer Italo Calvino? Yes. So I had read some of the magic realist writers like Italo Calvino and Borges and Marquez, and very much appreciated their magic realism. Yes. So that was certainly something in my artistic library, you might say. So that that's how it
0: started. Had you written any magical realism before that?
2: I had. I had written a couple of of short essays. I began writing essays about science in the early 1980s, around the mid eighties, I started stretching the form of the essay and and trying some experimental things. And I, I wrote a few essays that were really more like short stories. I had done a little bit of that before Einstein's dreams. Did you have a sense that there
0: was something special about that project when you were writing it? Could you have predicted maybe this is,
2: this is going to resonate with people? I did not have any inkling of its success, but I know that when I was writing it, that it felt very different from anything else that I've written. I felt like I went into a dream state myself for about three months and I was just, it was almost like a a long hallucination or something. So that part of it felt unusual, the actual writing of the book, but I, I certainly had no idea that it would be a success. Have you had that kind of experience? subsequently in projects? I've had smaller versions of it. Did you go to Switzerland? Well, I've been to S- Switzerland since the book, but while I was writing the book, I had, did not go to Switzerland. I did not go to Bern. And the reason I didn't go to Bern, uh, which is the this, this city that's, that's described most in the book, I didn't go there because I didn't want the real Bern to interfere with my imagined burn, I, I thought it might stifle my imagination if I was just writing down what I actually saw. So the way that I proceeded in that book is is I did not go to Bern or Switzerland while I was writing the book. I did do some research on the street names and things like that. But then when I was finished with, with the draft of the book, I sent it to some people who lived in Bern I said. Please correct any, you know, geographical mistakes I've made, like from this particular street. Can you see the clock tower? That kind of thing. Well, reading it feels like the
0: way you describe writing it. You know, it feels like you go into a dream, a a dream. Did you add the the first passage where you describe Einstein? There's only very few references to Einstein. After all of the dreams were written, did you get a sense, oh, I need to somehow place this in Einstein's life?
2: In the first draft of the book, I did have the opening chapter that sets the stage, but I did not have any of the interludes about the waking Einstein, where he's talking to his friend Besso and so on. Those came in the second draft when I realized that to make this a novel, or to give some narrative glue to it. So it's not just a bunch of 30 random little chapters. I, I needed to put in a little bit of narrative about the waking Einstein between dreams. And so I went back and put in the interludes into the book. So you're right, that's how it came about. As a physicist, it just seems
0: like such a ballsy thing to do to in any way purport to know what Einstein said or thought or did, you know, the imaginary Einstein... I think as an artist is a very free thing to do, but considering your background as a physicist, it seems like such a radical thing to do, to imagine what Einstein might, might have. Well,
2: I, I considered it to be a literary work from the very beginning. I didn't try to make any of the dreams scientifically realistic. It was always an artistic work from the, from the very beginning. So that, that didn't bother me. Although it did bother some reviewers, the great physicist, Stephen Hawking, reviewed the book for a magazine called Nature, a science magazine, and he complained that the physics wasn't right in the book and s- somehow missed the point that it was not a physics textbook. Well, I was trying to remember if I, where I read it, and I know we're going to wrap up now.
0: I, I think I read it in an undergraduate survey course called physics for poets which is a class that gets taught in a lot of universities but i went to the university of wisconsin and my professor was this guy bob march who wrote the text called physics for poets Mm -hmm. i brought the book home to my apartment and started reading it and the, the way i remember it is i said to my roommate this is a really interesting book this is really cool and my friend said to me that guy is very close friends with my father my roommate was Alex Canizares, and his father was. Cla- oh yeah, Canizaris. yeah,
2: Claude Canizares, yes.
0: So from the moment I discovered your book, I realized that you were a real person, which sometimes is helpful in yeah. understanding people's work. Oh, that's a person. That's a person who knows somebody I know. That's a great story. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I get to tell it to you as we wrap up because it really has been 25 plus years that I've wanted to talk to you about it, and I, I'm so grateful that we got some time with you today. And I'm now I. I have to get to work and figure out what
2: the muses have to offer after this. Well, I, I appreciate your being interested in talking to me and your podcast sounds very interesting, very unique. I'm pleased and honored to be a part of it.
0: Alan, thank you so much. Okay, and thank you,
2: Leo. Thank you, Jack. Bye-bye. Jack, do I, should I stay on?
0: Yes, yeah, you should uh... Whoa, decompress, though. I think so, right? Wow, What a great episode what a generosity you know i didn't he seem to really get excited when we started to talk about the creative stuff he did he's kind of leaned forward in his chair and
1: when he started talking about the life of the characters he really you really got him in then thank you for making so
0: so who do you want to do next oh man (laughs) first i have to write this i mean talk about trying to figure out how to write a song out of that there's there's an album's worth of material in i know
1: i was going to say because i was thinking he said the meaning in the moment that could be quite a nice song title. Yes. And then you could tie in about, you know, watching the setting sun or the mist rising and you know, <laughs> if you get in there about complicated characters and and how we do you know, he talks a lot about how we need to be, you know, reflect on our values and take the time and he must see his you know, this acceleration with his students using the devices probably during class and the attention span going down and, and his work, you know, he, as a writer and as a teacher, it's all about good attention span, it's about good concentration and Yeah, to see that kind of dissolving and as as we all accelerate towards infinity, as he put it, then
0: you know, it's accelerate towards infinity. Did he say that? No, but he said something similar like that. Brilliant thing to say. But but I think like um, what's funny about these kinds of conversations is that some so much of what's revealed is like in the humanness of it, like that he refused email (laughs) for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I knew he wasn't on Twitter
1: or Instagram or any of the socials because they researched him, but I didn't know he didn't. Because luckily he does email because that, that's how I got him.
0: I mean, otherwise, you would have been leaving messages on some sort of like an old answering machine in Life Team. We just land, you know?
1: Yes, yeah, sending pigeons to an island. I don't know what
0: Island off the coast of Maine, exactly.
1: You know, he's a serious guy, but he's a deep,
0: deep still waters run deep now. Because I do this also, including reaching out to people. Yeah. I suggested that you get in touch with him because it's hard work. It is hard work, you know. And but then, what I realized when we started is, okay, so there's a lot. This is a little bit of the confusing thing about your project is, okay, well, who's Jack, and then who's the other? Where are they, and and mm-hmm. whose podcasted is it? And what what is it going to be? I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of questions that
1: are. There just... Is. and also the musicians. When I ask them, they don't. So I'm writing a song with the guest, and then I don't understand that nobody understands the idea of this yeah. of this podcast. Yeah, which is yes, I guess if you want to do a new thing. It's difficult to explain to people, but.
0: It just reveals itself. I mean, I think it's revealing itself.
1: So what are you gonna to say to people when you go out tonight or today? I was I spoke
0: to Alan Lightman. Mm. I've got to write a song about it. I mean this yeah. sounds simple, yeah. Yeah, I spoke to Alan yeah. Lightman. I mean, you know, the, the other thing is that like interviews are a wonderful source of of inspiration. You know, I, I interviewed this other novelist years ago, Peter Straub, who was a wonderful writer and, and was a friend also, and and he had this line where he said, Inspiration is real but earned, which means you will get struck by inspiration, but you have to be ready for it. You know, you have the right, right. mode of creating, but you can't predict when it's going to come and what's, what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, so, well, it's like you said about this, you know, or he said about the musician, you are every song you've ever listened to. You know, when you meet someone, you're at their every experience.
0: That's a great idea for a song. This going to be an album. I'm telling you. Yeah. Or an EP. So what do we do now? Now, we, now we're supposed to go off into our corners and, and, um, and ideate, right? Make up some... Just uh, initial sketches.
1: Yeah, we, we sit in front of an eleven-year-old girl, and we just give her the you know. See, she says yes or no. She
0: mostly says no to me. She's a tough, tough, girl. <laughs> but she's very, very tuned into mm. what's. I guess I would say what's not, what's commercial. Mm. Yeah. Do you listen back to the conversations before you write, or you know, you just just based on your? Sense? No, I
1: made I make lots of notes. Yeah, I saw. So I know. Um, I, saw. I take. I write down the sort of the three word, four word phrases that sound nice and then rip him off for the song yeah yeah well so I'll, I'll come up with something I'll send you an idea great. of why you know some ideas some three chords and a couple of rhymes and then you you develop that into a Leo masterpiece
0: <laughs> I'll do what I again Jack I'm curious to see where this goes Me too thanks man alright hope your pleasure be
1: well take care bye bye
0: every single thing is impermanent Every last star in the firmament Everyone you love or you ever met Every single thought running through your head Every setting sun, every morning mist All the works of art and the sciences Every out-of-body experience Every single thing is important today